Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, well, welcome back to the Equipping You Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And with me today, I have my good friend and brother in Christ, Jacob Tanner. Jacob, welcome to the show, brother. Hey, thanks for having me today. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Well, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your life, marriage, ministry, and what are you working on ministry project-wise? Sure. So like you said, I'm Jacob Tanner. I live in central Pennsylvania with my wife, Kayla. And my two sons, Josiah and Owen, both under the age of four. In fact, Owen's under the age of six months. So we've got two little ones, one of them running around the house. One of them will probably soon be crawling around the house. But God has blessed me with a great family there, and I praise him for it. Also, serving as a pastor at a new church. We're actually a church plant. It's a Reformed Baptist church plant called Christ Keystone Church and very new, actually only just started a few months back. And so everything is still getting settled, getting rooted. But, you know, praise the Lord that we even have the opportunity to do something like that. And on top of that, I do a bit of writing, as you know. In fact, I get to work a little bit with you with Servants of Grace and very thankful for that opportunity to contribute there. Do some other things. I work a little bit with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals for their Reformation 21 slash Meet the Puritans uh, blog section of things. And so I do a lot of work with the Puritans. I really like historical theology in general, but the Reformers and the Puritans seem to be the guys that I gravitate towards the most. And then on top of that, do some work with G3 Ministries and Wrath and Grace Ministries. So couple of different things going on there, a couple of different places that I write for, but thankful for each one of them. Yeah, that's great, brother. Well, you have this new this new book coming out, uh, Union mm-hmm. with Christ, The Joy of Christian's Assurance and the Doctrines of Grace. Uh, can you tell us why you wrote it and how you hope it'll be received? Yeah, so the book actually has an interesting, or at least I think it's an interesting origin, I was invited to preach a series of sermons at a church that I guess the easy way to say it was very, very Arminian, but the pastor was a Calvinist. And so he knew that I was Reformed Baptist. He knew that I held to the 1689 and he invited me to come and preach a series of sermons at his church over the course of, I forget how long it was. It was like a month or two on Sunday nights. Um, what ended up happening was I didn't finish the series while I was there. So it took a little bit longer. And then I actually never got to finish the series at this church for a variety of reasons, but the people who were there wanted me to finish it. And so I ended up writing out the rest of the sermons with the idea that maybe, maybe we could just send it in like an email chain. But the series originally was just explaining the doctrines of grace And the approach that I took was typically I preach expositionally. So I go verse by verse through books of the Bible, but I was invited to go and preach someplace else. So you can't exactly 
go through an entire book when you're just the guest. So what I did is a little bit more topical at first. It was still expositional preaching through those passages of scripture. But I started in Genesis with the intention of explaining total depravity. And I figured we would start in Genesis and basically go all the way through to Revelation and explain how the doctrines of grace or how Calvinism shape our lives, how it shapes everything about the Christian faith and also how it's biblical. But do so in such a way, the pastor requested, that the congregation wouldn't be put off by my use of language. So as I was studying these things and preparing for them, I thought to myself, what's What's one of the good metaphors that we're given in scripture that can help us to better understand the doctrines of grace? And I realize one of the sort of metaphors that carries you all the way from the Old Testament through to the New Testament, you see it in Genesis and it's there again in Revelation, is this idea of the bride of Christ. And so as I was thinking, what does it mean to be the bride of Christ? I realized that really does relate a great deal to Calvinistic soteriology, but also just in general to the doctrines of grace and the entirety of the Christian life. So the series that I ended up preaching at this church, again, I didn't get to finish it, but the series was on what it means to be the bride of Christ. And within each of those sermons, I was explaining another tenet, another facet of Calvinism, but without using the terms of tulip or anything like that, you know, so that the people, they knew what I was preaching but they wouldn't be put off by the terminology. So I, like I said, I think I did about five sermons for that series at that particular church, didn't get to finish the series and kind of just sat on things for a little bit. But then people from this church were approaching me and they were saying, are you ever going to finish it? Is there any way that we could listen to the remaining sermons? And so what I did is I then took those same sermons that I had preached and I fine-tuned them a bit and brought them to my own church on a Wednesday night. So the church that I was preaching at at the time, we did a Bible study. And again, I was calling it the Bride of Christ. And I was just focusing on that idea of the Bride of Christ, but I was much more open at my church. And I said, the Bride of Christ and how it connects to the doctrines of grace. And I went through the entire series there. I think at that point I had seven sermons. And again, the people seemed to really grasp onto it. Uh, people liked it. They were inviting others out to hear these Bible studies on what it means to be the bride of Christ, how we're saved, how we're preserved, all of these different things. And so I finished the series at the church and I have all of it written out. And I say, well, what we can do is we can send it to these people who keep on asking. They can at least read the rest of the series for themselves. But as I was then fine-tuning it and writing it to get it ready to email to people, I realized that I had enough words for a book. And as I was then looking at it and thinking, I realized there might be people actually interested in reading a book like this on the Bride of Christ. So I then went back through it. This is now the third time I'm looking at it. And as I'm going through it, I realized that the Bride of Christ isn't the only illustration that's used to explain our union with Christ. And so I started to look at the Bride of Christ, the body of Christ. What does it mean to even be members of the church? And as I did all of those things, I realized that rather than just focusing on the Bride of Christ, we could focus on what it means to be united with Christ, what it is to be in union with Jesus and how all of that then relates to the doctrines of grace. And the idea being 
that when we're united to Christ by faith, we're actually members of his body. We're united to him. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. When you understand that reality connected to the doctrines of grace that, yes, we were depraved in our sins, but we have been elected to salvation. We have been atoned for by Christ. We have been drawn irresistibly to Jesus. Now we're preserved in Christ. When you realize those truths, it brings you joy. It brings you a gladness, a happiness that you can't have, I don't think, apart from this particular system of theology. And so really my hope for the book is that, and this is, I know, high, lofty, but my hope is that other Arminians will pick up the book because, hey, that's that's what I was at one point. But they'll pick up the book and they'll see these truths and they'll have that sort of moment that I had. I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but I had this moment some years ago where actually I was reading a biography on Martin Luther and Luther was explaining justification by faith alone. And for whatever reason, when he was explaining that in the book and I was reading his own words, suddenly Calvinism just made perfect sense to me. And it was like a new a new dawn went off for me. And I'm kind of hoping that people will have that same experience. And at the same time, I'm hoping Calvinists will pick up the book and be encouraged by it. We know these truths. It's it's nothing new. I hope I'm not saying anything new, because if I am, then there's an issue. But I'm <laughs> hoping it will be an encouragement to the church at large, and it will lead people into a deeper knowledge of the truth. Yeah. Well, you you had me write the forward, and I, I think I helped edit. So that means that mm-hmm. if uh, there is any mistakes, it's not only on you, it's also on me, which is always like crap, <laughs> which makes me think I should have probably had my wife at it instead of me. <laughs> then, then we could blame her if there's a lot of if there's a lot of mistakes, it's her fault. But we can't do that now. No, no, I, I get the blame <laughs> and it would be on me, not on her. But uh, no, I think that the book is really like you're saying, it's really easy to read it's easy to understand it's helpful and you know it definitely comes across that you know you you want the average christian to grab hold of these truths and these truths are so so important to understand not only because you know of calvinism and you know all those things but because these doctrines really are as you said so well they are rooted in the bible um, mm-hmm. You know, I remember what John Piper used to say, don't preach the don't preach Calvinism, preach the Bible. And he's not saying don't preach, you know, the doc, your theology. His point is don't preach your systematic theology first, preach the Bible right. first. You know, and obviously we know that our systematic theology is going to impact, you know, how we preach the Bible. But we have to be yeah. text people first, like Calvin was and owen and spurgeon and you know the whole the whole nine yards right so i think what you're i think what you're trying to do here is really really important especially because you know we we have seen this explosion we've also seen people explode um out of the movement um Mm -hmm. and so clarifying i think what it means to be probably what we could say essentially reformed you know, mm-hmm. we could just say it that way, meaning, you know, these these are things that whether you're a dispensationalist and you're Calvinist or you're just reformed or whatever, or you're a Presbyterian, these are the these are the the heart of what it means to be, mm-hmm. you know, hold to at least a reformed soterology. 
And I think that's really, really important, um, especially because, you know, we've seen, you know, you go online and you just see these, it's like a bomb, you know, going off on Facebook and Twitter and we just lob grenades at each other. And I think if we were to come back to these kinds of ideas again mm -hmm. and to read them like you're putting forward, it would humble us. Um, and we need that. We, we, these are not doctrines that we just lob grenades about on social media, because like you said, um, think back to when you were wrestling with these things, think back right. to when you were dealing with these things your first time and then realize, Hey, these, these, some of these things are really hard to, to wrestle with and to deal with. And, and so yeah. we should have patience and humility. Um, and, and not only that, but like when you read the Heidelberg confession, I just, I read that and I'm like, how can you be that way um, with, with its warm devotional nature? Um, and that's, that's why, you know, that, that's what appeals to me more than, I mean, the, the, the solid intellectual side of things really appeals to me because as my wife says, you're a super nerd, Dave, uh, you know, I've graduated past nerd to super nerd. Okay. But you um, made it, you're there. I'm there. I'm there, you know, and I'm, I'm on my way to, I guess, whatever the next level is, um, you know, a spectacular nerdism. Yeah. That's what, yes, comes next. yes, yes. I'm, I'm aiming for that for, for, you know, the rest of my life, but uh -huh. anyways, yeah. You know, the, the warm devotional nature of things is really follows, like you said, it follows in the tradition of the Puritans, um, mm -hmm. following in the tradition of the reformers. And, um, that's something that I think that your book does really well and something that I, I really want, um, you know, why I appreciate Joel Beakey and others like him, yeah. Mark Jones, you know, uh, with who we've had them on here too. Um, that's the kind of reform theology that reform theology actually stands for. Right. So, um, yeah. I, I think that one of the things I tried to do with the book, I didn't, when I was preaching them just as sermons, I didn't do this, but with the book, I went to historical sources. And so I think you're probably going to read more quotes from Puritans than anything else within the book. There's actually only a handful of quotes that I use from Calvin himself. And that's not because I don't like Calvin. He's actually one of my favorite theologians, but the Puritans, like you said, have this, this warmth about them that really is difficult to replicate, I think, elsewhere. But like you said, guys like Beaky and Jones, they're they're taking that sort of same war Puritan warmth and they're applying it to our modern age, which is really a lot of what we need. I, I remember when I was first really beginning to be introduced to the doctrines of grace, I got kind of a weird story. I was saved relatively young and I started preaching relatively young and I've still not been preaching that long, but I started preaching yeah, when I was yeah, 16. Tell, tell us how old you are again. <laughs> so I'm 28, but I started preaching when I was 16, not in depth, not full time or anything like that. But the first sermon I was 16. I then preached again the next year when I was 17 once and really didn't want to preach. It wasn't like people were saying, God needs you for this purpose. God, God has called you to this purpose. But I definitely had that outward call before I really, well, if I did have the inward call, I wasn't surrendering to it. Let's put it that way. Uh, did not want to. But as I was preaching in those first few years, I was 18 
when I finished high school and then entered into what basically amounted to a local unaccredited seminary. And when I say it was unaccredited, I mean, if I knew anything at all, like I know now about the way colleges and seminaries work, I would go back in time and tell myself, do not do that program because it's just, it wasn't, it wasn't the best program, but God was able to use it in a variety of different ways. And so the program itself was taught by very, very Arminian people, very anti-Calvinistic pastors and teachers. And as I was going through the program and studying the Bible, I didn't really have categories for Arminianism or Calvinism. I held two personal beliefs that I hadn't been taught in church. I believed that you couldn't lose your salvation, for example. And the first time I brought that up at one of these sort of classroom settings, well, really, I was being graded on a test. But the first time I brought it up, I was I was almost torn apart. And I was told, stay away from it. You don't want anything to do with Calvinism. And I said to myself, what in the world is Calvinism? All I said was, you can't lose your salvation. And in one sense, that's one of the worst things they could have done because I immediately went home and Googled, what is Calvinism? Because I've never heard this term before in my life. And for the next few years, I was told over and over again, stay away from Calvinism. You don't want anything to do with those heretics, with those cultists. And I was told all of these different, very strong language, stay away from it. But by the grace of God, I couldn't stay away from it. I kept going back to it because what I was reading in the Bible wasn't lining up with what I was being taught. And when I would go and I would search these things out and Google these things, I would find, for example, I was in agreement with Charles Spurgeon, but I wasn't in agreement with John Wesley. You know, that that was the big guy for him, by the way, John Wesley. So I wasn't in agreement with him, but I, I liked what Spurgeon had to say. And then, I, you know, I did avoid Calvin for a little bit because I was like, he's got to be worse of the worst. But I eventually did go to him. And then I found the Puritans as well. Actually, I had found the Puritans earlier. Bunyan was one of the first ones that I ever read when I was a teenager still. And I loved Bunyan, but I didn't know he was a Calvinist. Maybe I just blurred over all of that stuff. But when I finally kind of broke free from that entire movement and came to a proper knowledge of salvation, and I I finally got rid of, I denounced works-based salvation, which I didn't really believe but it was the in thing to do. You know, that was my circle of people. They they would say things like, if you're uh, driving down the road and you get cut off by somebody and say you get mad at that person and you say something you shouldn't say, you yell in your car at that person and you sin, but then you drive off the road and you die and you didn't repent from that sin that you just committed, you're going to hell. You lost your salvation. And they would always teach things like this. And that that was a legit example that they used. They would teach things like that. And I would sit there and I go, it just doesn't make sense, though. That, that How could that possibly be? But they would then invite me to their church. And I'd be like, well, if you want to be part of the in crowd, you can't preach against that. So I won't preach that exactly. But I'm also not going to preach what I think the Bible is actually teaching here. I'm just going to kind of ride the fence. And I kid you not, that was some of the some of the most tumultuous time periods in my life where I was basically suppressing the truth of what the Bible taught. And I was afraid of teaching what the Bible actually taught because I knew that if I did it in our area, I would be an outcast. I would be rejected. 
But when I finally embraced these truths, yeah, I was I was cast out by these groups. I mean, I knew it was going to happen. But the amount of joy that I now have in Christ, the amount of comfort that I have in him just cannot be surpassed. Not only do I know Jesus is my treasure, but I feel I feel the fact that he's my treasure. I feel that warmth. I feel that joy in a way that I couldn't before when I believed that, you know, salvation was up to me. I had to earn it. And then I had to work really hard to keep it. And maybe possibly at the end, after all of it, God would look at me and be satisfied enough to let me come into heaven. But when you embrace these truths for the first time, you finally come to the knowledge that it's all of grace. It's it's all of God's sovereign grace. There is a genuine joy that comes about. And I, I think that's probably true for most of us. Would you say that's kind of like how it happened for you too? Yeah, you know, I was reading Sproul and C.S. Lewis and, um, well, my junior, my just before my freshman year, I just started falling in the lead, come back from summer camp. And I was like, I just need to read more. I just need to know more. And so mm-hmm. I really started devouring my Bible. I was probably, let's see, I was probably like 14 at this time, 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. And that's really where I started loving theology. And I started devouring the Bible. And then later on in my 20s, I looked back, I've looked back, I looked back at that. And I was like, wait a minute. I was actually reform becoming reformed at that time. I didn't even mm-hmm. I didn't even know that. I mean, I had no idea. Um, of course, in in high school, we studied systematic theology. We actually read Grudem's systematic theology, which also mm-hmm. made me think, hey, um, another kind of telltale sign, you know, that, you know, but uh, about reformed theology. And then so looking back, I've just looked back and I'm like, so it's probably reformed like since I was about 14. And even before that, we were at a Presbyterian Bible-believing church, but I don't really remember like what was taught or anything like that. I came to, to faith at an early age of five, but I, I don't really remember too many too much about like things were taught at that time. Just remember some key moments in, in my childhood, and that was one of them in my teens. But so you, um, you were going to a Presbyterian church when you we were going, I think it's a PCUSA church and it was just up the road. Oh, wow. Okay. Where we were at. And uh, this is before I think they were starting to go. And actually, we sang in the, I sang in the choir when I was little, when I, before puberty. And my voice was like, anyways, but uh, man, you're getting, you're getting, up, yeah. you're getting, this is gold right here that I'm giving you and everybody else. <laughs> oh, man, blackmail. But um, that's going to come back to bite me. Anyways, uh, somebody's going to cut this that. interview. So it's just that portion. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's, that's totally fine. I don't care. But Dave saying soprano in a PC, PC USA. Church. I don't know yeah. if it was a PC USA church. It, it is now it is now, but it was just yeah. up the street and we would just walk up there. And, um, but other than that, we went to per- fairly solid Bible churches. And so I just, I just remember reading, um, I, in high school, I probably read, um, I wouldn't read him now, Swindoll and all these other guys, um, Lucado, you know, all these things. I just devoured theology. And then I started realizing, eh, I don't really like that. So I'm not going to read that anymore. Um, and well, uh, I think, I think you're still better off than I was because, yeah, growing up, I say that I grew up nominally Roman Catholic. Yeah. Um, if you, if you would have seen my bedroom when I was younger, 
and this is probably why Arminianism made sense to me for such a long time. My room was basically a Roman Catholic shrine. I had at the age of wow. five, uh, the statues of the saints, you know, like the idols, really. <laughs> they were just Jeez. all over the place in my not, room. You were not reformed. I was not reformed. No, You're I had rosary. Class. Yeah. Yeah. I had rosary <laughs> beads. I had the whole nine yards, pictures of Jesus galore, uh, just all over the place. Now, in retrospect, I have no idea who was actually hanging up on my wall, but you know, at yeah. the time I thought they were pictures of you, Jesus. You just thought they were and cool. then yeah, yeah. No, I and honestly, even though we weren't going to the Roman Catholic Church, I adopted that framework. Looking back on it, that was my theology. Because when I would pray, I'd pray to the pictures of Jesus that were hanging up in my room. Um, and then we went from that into, and I've shared this in different places before. But we were prosperity gospel all the way. Uh, we were into the charismatic movement. And if you would have seen my room when I was 14, that's when you were reading your theology books. I was too, but I was reading, no lie, Joel Osteen. I had I was reading his books and I was taking notes and I was underlining everything and going, yep, this is good stuff. This is good theology. Wow. And then I would go and I'd read John Bunyan. And I knew there was a disconnect but I was unwilling to admit that that disconnect was there. So there was this idea, you can't lose your salvation, but you got to work really, really hard for it and work to keep it, but you're going to keep it if you work hard enough to keep it. I was just, I was all messed up until I finally came to accept, you know, this is what the Bible actually teaches. I can't deny it any longer. I have to profess this. I have to proclaim it. And again, I go back to those first years of my my pulpit ministry of actually publicly preaching. And I cringe thinking back on some of those things I've said. And I've had to repent for some of the things that I would say from the pulpit because they were flat out wrong. And, you know, you could say, well, mate, you were genuine when you were doing it. I wasn't. I was actually just trying to fit in because it's what all of the other preachers were preaching. Mm. So you're 18, 19 years old going into these Arminian churches and the pastor's sitting right there and you know the thing that's going to get the biggest amen because that by the way is a thing in a lot of armenian churches you know people will really get excited and say amen if you say the right thing and that's that's kind of what you're looking for that and the altar call at the end of the service right so you want to see that altar filled and you want to hear the loudest amens possible and so i i wouldn't flat out say uh that you could lose your salvation i may have said it a few times even though i didn't believe it but there were other things I would say, like, you've got to work harder to be as holy as you can possibly be. And then maybe at the end, Jesus will accept you. But you got to do better, church. And, you know, everybody would be, amen, amen. It's the best thing we've ever heard. But I didn't believe it. I was just doing it for the amens. And I would even be in the pulpit. And as I was saying these things, I would think to myself, why am I saying this? Why am I doing this? But if you want to be invited back... This is this is what you got to do. And so then at the end, I would give the gospel and I'd be like, but just so you know, Jesus died for your sins. And if you will believe in him by faith, you will be saved. And if anybody was actually truly paying attention, I think they could see how contradictory my statements were at the time because they were they were all over the place until, like I said, around it was 19, 20 years old where I finally looked at the Bible and I said, if this is called Calvinism, if this is what Reformed theology is, this is what I believe. This is what yeah. the Bible teaches. This is biblical Christianity. And I'm going to preach it, even if the people don't like it. 
And almost immediately, those churches that would have me come back over and over again, you know, they thought it was great, a young guy coming to preach the word of God. And the first time I finally leaned into it, like you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody got silent. Everybody was just staring. There were no amens. Nobody came to the altar at the end of the service. And that was consistently the experience then for the next two, three years or so until finally those churches just stopped inviting me all together. And, you know, the insults were then hurled at me. So if you're a Calvinist, you're all these other things. But again, the thing is, it's what the Bible teaches. So you're either going to believe what the Bible teaches, or you're going to believe a man-made system of theology. And the man-made system of theology is never going to bring peace. It's never going to bring joy. Not not in the same way that the Bible does. It might bring a replica of it, right? But it's not going to last. What we need is biblical Christianity to be taught. And it just so happens it goes by the name of Calvinism, Reformed theology, whatever you want to call it. But it's biblical. It's it's there in the Bible. And I would add to that historical, too. This is what the church historically professed. Yeah, things have gotten muddy, but this is historical Christianity as well. Yeah, there's a lot of people that have an issue. You know, they say, I, I always find this interesting. They always say, you know, that we can't, Calvinists can't make an offer of salvation to, to people. Hmm. And what you're what you're touching on is actually you're saying the opposite. And whenever somebody says that, I'm just like, well, what do you do with Spurgeon? You know, mm-hmm. and he had what over six thousand people in his in his church. Yeah, and he he preached to crowds of fifty thousand. I can't remember. It's like fifty thousand plus. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. I mean, in the eighteen hundreds, are you kidding me? Uh, mm-hmm. Early nineteen hundreds, are you kidding me? And he saw massive amounts of people. So, so how does that how does that argument work? I don't think it does. Um, so the way the way that I've heard this explained to me before, because I just the other day I was having a conversation with somebody who actually heard me preach this original series and they were asking me more questions about Calvinism. So that's good. You know, the conversation has continued. They haven't adopted it yet. They see it. They just don't know what really they should do with it. And they were asking me the question. They said, if God has elected sinners unto salvation, then that necessarily means there are some who are reprobate. And I said, well, yeah, that's taught in Romans chapter nine. I I bring them to Romans chapter nine. They go, but okay, if this is the case, how can we preach the gospel to them? How can we go and share the gospel with them knowing that God's not going to save them? And I said, okay, let's back up. You don't know whether or not God's going to save them. That's for us in a sense. I think the doctrine of election should be better understood as a comfort for Christians in both our own salvation. So it's a reminder to us, we were elected before the foundation of the world. We belong to Christ now. Nothing's going to take us from his hands. That's really, really good news. But it's also a comfort for us in our evangelism. So when we go out and we share the gospel, we can know with absolute certainty, if we're being faithful to the gospel, God is going to save those whom he has intended to save. And he's going to harden those whom he has intended to harden. And so a way that I've explained this, I I explain it this way in the book, and I explained it this way in other places as well. But the success for the Christian evangelist or pastor or just your average Christian going out and proclaiming the gospel, our success is not dependent on the number of souls we see saved, 
but on faithfulness to the message itself. So when we're faithful to the gospel, it's always successful. Whether that means sinners are saved or they're hardened, no matter what, it's always successful. But we don't know who's going to be saved. We don't know who the elect are. I think it was Spurgeon, actually, who has that illustration of, I wish the elect were marked with something to tell me. They're the elect. They're the ones you need to share the gospel with. But they're not. And so I just have to preach the gospel to everybody and leave that part of the saving of the sinners up to God. But it gives me confidence it's going to be successful no matter where we go with it. So that's how I've tried explaining it. And it seems like when I do that, they they get it. They get it more than whether or not people are going to be saved. Our success is faithfulness. Yeah, exactly. And just kind of touching more on that, I kind of I kind of maybe take a, a little bit more of a step. Our job is, like you said, to be faithful. And so all we can do is we bring the message, like you said, mm -hmm. and then we commit our efforts and whatever it is to the spirit. And the spirit is the one who we see in scripture, opening eyes, irresistibly drawing them to salvation, you know, Amen. bringing them to conversion, even, even, even the Christian to, you know, repentance for a variety of things. So our job isn't to bring the change. Our job is just to bring the message. And, right. and that helps that helps people, I think, to see, okay, we're not trying to get somebody just to to walk an aisle and make a one time decision. Actually, we're trying right. to get them to do is what Jesus did with the 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 disciples. And that is to see that the whole of life is you know, Jesus didn't just say, oh, go walk an aisle and you'll be my disciple. He invited them into his inner circle to follow him to. Uh, to take up the cross in Luke 9, 23 through 27 and, and to really follow him all the way. And this mm -hmm. is the only way, I think, as we're talking about where, where it enables us to see that, not just that as Luther and Calvin and others, you know, that repentance is not just for the one-time event. It's, it's, it mm -hmm. is a one-time event you know, and by that brings us to salvation, brings us to conversion, you know, and to understand justification and adoption and all that. But it's also the other side of it. It's for, you know, our life in Christ. We we have to repent of our sin and turn and trust in Christ uh, and, and um, all that, all that he's done on mm -hmm. our behalf. And so, that's really, really um, important. It's also really misunderstood. And I think what you're, what you've brought out today is, is a lot of that, not only about evangelism, but it also brings out a lot about why so many uh, Christians struggle with assurance. So maybe you want to touch on mm -hmm. that just a little bit too. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the main reasons for this book, Union with Christ, is to give Christians a deeper understanding and deeper joy of the assurance that they have of their salvation in Christ. So when you understand that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God elected us to salvation before the foundation of the world, Jesus then came and he atoned for our sins. I like to use the illustration that he went to the cross with names and faces on his mind. That's how I put it in the book, that it was a definite atonement. He knew for whom he was dying, I say. So he definitely atoned for the sins of the elect. Then at the time appointed by the father, we heard the gospel proclaimed or perhaps some listening will still hear the gospel proclaimed, right? At the time, God is appointed. The Holy Spirit then 
again, I use this illustration, pierced us with the truth of the gospel through the heart. So our heart, which was dead in sin, our heart, which was stony, has been pierced with the truth of the gospel, that that cold heart of stone has been replaced with a beating heart of flesh, and we have been irresistibly drawn to Christ in such a way that we now love him. It's no longer about me, myself, and I, my three favorite people. It's my new favorite three people are Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? I have new heart, new affections, new desires, new loves. I love Christ. I love his word. And so I'm preserved in Christ because I'm in him. The Holy Spirit's in me. I'm in Christ. I'm part of his body. I'm triply secure. I use this illustration in the book as well. Triply secure. I'm held in the hands of the son in John 10, 28 to 30. I'm held in the hands of the son whose hand is held in the hand of the father. And nobody can pluck me from the son's hand. Nobody can pluck the son's hand from the father's hand. And I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. So I'm triply secure in Christ. I'm united to him by this faith. And there's nothing that can take me away from him now. I'm his bride or part of the bride of Christ. I'm I'm part of the church. And think of what a dishonor it would bring upon Christ, either A, to fail to save one of those whom the Father elected unto salvation, chose to gift to the Son as his bride in this arranged marriage, or B, imagine how much dishonor it would bring upon the Son for this marriage to end in a divorce, for somebody to turn away. So we can have genuine assurance that we are not only saved, but because of our unity in Christ, because we've been united to him by faith, there's nothing that can take us away from him. There's nothing that can take us from his hand. You know, Satan can't come along and snatch us from him. I've heard it said before, and Peter says this too, Satan is a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. And I like to say, while that is true for the Christian Satan is really just an oversized cat. He has effectively been declawed and defanged. And so the most he can do for the Christian is be a nuisance. And I don't, Dave, I don't know if you're a cat guy or not. I, this is probably going to make me lose points with some people. I really don't like cats all that much because I, they're annoying, but we had a cat growing up and this cat would constantly in the middle of the night, go around and just like swipe stuff off of the counters. And you'd hear something crash and shatter because this cat was annoying, right? It was a nuisance. And that's basically what Satan is. You know, Satan is, he's a nuisance for the Christian. He can still cause some serious issues and problems. The flesh can still cause serious issues and problems. The world can still cause serious issues and problems. But not one of them, not even ourselves, can remove us from the grace that we now have being united to Christ. So there's assurance there. And then that assurance is expressed by that change of heart. So I write in the book a little bit about this idea of while we don't work for our salvation and while we don't work to earn our salvation, the fact that we're united to Christ by faith means we're actually going to have good works. We're going to be obedient, for example, to God's laws. You know, we're no longer going to be the people that steal and hate and in our hearts commit murder or in our hearts commit adultery. We're most certainly not going to be the ones who go out and commit adultery. We're not going to be the people who blaspheme the Lord. We're not going to be the people who revile the Sabbath day, the Lord's day. We're going to be a people obedient to the Lord because... We've been saved. We've been transformed. We've been united to Christ by faith. And so 1 John gets into this, and Galatians does a little bit too. 
while we're saved by faith, these these good works, as they are, become the sort of assurance that we've been united to Christ. So they don't save, they don't keep us saved, but they're born out of the heart that has genuinely been saved. And when you understand that, I think that brings you not only assurance, but with that assurance comes joy, a true joy that Christ is my savior. He's my redeemer. He's my king. I can seek to bring all things in my own life and around me under the lordship of Jesus Christ because I've been united to him by faith. And there, I think, is a great, great joy and assurance to be found in those truths. That's really good, brother. I mean, yeah, that, 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 yeah. Because what we were talking about earlier was just the performance mindset that is so pervaded the church, um, that is so antithetical to the gospel, that makes it more about me. And what this does is it makes it all about God. And then about what he has done on our behalf um, and how he, by the spirit, is working in us, giving us the, the, the granting us the privilege and the, the rights as children of God adopted by him. And uh, so that's that's really good. Really good. Amen. Well, brother, where can people go to find out more about you on social media or otherwise? So. I actually don't have a giant social media presence right now. What? You can find me on Facebook. Search for Jacob Tanner. You'll find me there. Um, we do have a YouTube page for our church, which is, I think we changed the title to Christ Keystone Studios. Christ Keystone Studios is for our church page. So that's where you can see our church services. You can listen to my sermons on there. And we've got a few other things we're doing under the church's umbrella of Christ Keystone Church. That's why we changed it to studios. So we actually started a new podcast on there called Theater of Glory, Theater of Glory. And in that we, well, I go through various events from church history. Like I said, a lot of what I do deals with either historical theology or church history. And there's a lot of things that I've been wanting to teach the church, but it's hard I'm already preaching like 50 minutes to an hour, typically with expository preaching. So it's hard to really get into all of the church history stuff that I want to get into. And so this is kind of an avenue for me to satisfy that desire of talking about church history. But, you know, people can go and they can check that out. So Theater of Glory that right now we're going through uh, the Reformation and not only the Reformation, but basically saving the Reformation, the canons of Dort and things like that. We're going to be going through that for a little bit. Um, you can also check out the sound of truth, which has been on hiatus for a short bit, but we're looking into getting that back up and going. In fact, you've been on the sound of truth before you've been interviewed on there. So we're going to be getting that up and going here in the next few months, but you can still find, uh, previous episodes if you just search for the sound of truth. And then of course, like I said earlier, there are uh, various places that I write for. So, like I said, Wrath and Grace is one of the places that I write for. I write for you with Servants of Grace, uh, G3 Ministries, and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. There's uh, Reformation 21, Place for Truth, and Meet the Puritans. I'm on all three of those on their website. So I don't have a lot of personal accounts, but you can find me different places. Yeah. Well, brother, as I always say towards the end of these things, there's so much to talk about, and that's true with this. We've kind of only scratched the surface. Uh, can you give our listeners and those who watch this say, you know, a few takeaways? So 
one of the things that I want to encourage everybody listening to this to do is if you're on the fence about these things, you're not too sure about Calvinism for whatever reason you've come across this podcast and you're weighing all of the different alternatives, I would encourage you to truly read the scriptures, truly read them, get all of the preconceived notions out of your head of what they're supposed to say and actually weigh the truths of scripture. For example, look at a text like John chapter six, read verse 37, where Jesus says, all that the father has given me will come to me. And those who come to me, I will never cast them out. And then think in terms of what it means to be the bride of Christ, what it means to be united to Christ. Because if the father has arranged this marriage and he has given us to the son and the son has said, not only are they going to come, but I won't cast them out. I don't think there's any other alternative than Calvinism and Calvinism then will shape the entirety of your life in such a way that you're not going to become a a staunch or cold blooded Calvinist. You know, we've we've talked before, we've joked before some of my friends about being the frozen chosen, you know, the people who basically got no personality other than arguing for Calvinism. That's not what will happen if you genuinely understand these truths. Rather, you're going to become like the Puritans, warm in your faith, joyful in your faith. You'll become like men, like we said earlier, like Joel Beakey, who genuinely love the Lord and they want to see the law saved and they want to see the church built up. That's what I will believe will happen if you come to a knowledge of these truths, if you truly understand what it means to have union with Christ. I'd also encourage you, if you'd like, to pick up the book, Union with Christ, and there will be a few different ways that you can get it. We're going to work on an audiobook. I don't know when the audiobook will be released. That's That's a future project, so eventually that will be out. So if for whatever reason you want to listen to me read a book... I guess you can do that eventually, um, but you can also get the physical book off of Amazon, or you can get the digital book as well off of Kindle, or I think maybe a few other places too. Not entirely sure what digital versions there are going to be, but it should also be released on the Wrath and Grace Universe app at some point in the future as well. So there will be multiple avenues if people are interested in getting the book. And again, the book is Union with Christ. And the subtitle is The Joy of the Christian's Assurance and the Doctrines of Grace. And really, my goal is not to make a bunch of money off the book. My goal is to see the church built up in the truth. One of the big things I long to see in our own day and age is a modern reformation take place. And if this can play just a small role in that, then praise the Lord. Amen, brother. Well, guys, uh, Jacob's book is Union with Christ, The Joy of the Christian's Assurance in the Doctrines of Grace. It is a very good book, and I encourage you to go ahead and pick it up. And until next time, uh, Jacob, we'll We'll talk to you soon. And guys, thank you for listening or watching this week's episode of uh, Coping and Grace. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.